0: Our scripture reading today is uh, from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. It's a pretty familiar passage to many. It might be the most, or at least one of the most familiar uh, parables, if it is a parable. At least it's an illustration, and we'll talk more about that. Last week, at the end of uh, the passage that we read, we saw Jesus praying. And in his prayer, he prays, uh, uh, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And in this passage, we will see one of those wise and understanding coming to Jesus. And next week, we'll actually see. A person who has a very childlike faith uh, coming and just sitting before Jesus, but this this contains the uh, the parable or the illustration of the Good Samaritan that that most people are familiar with. It's interesting it's one of the most familiar parables, even though it's only found in Luke. This is not. This parable is not in Matthew or Mark or John, although no parables are in John. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So when I was in seminary, uh, there were, there were two types of students who would ask questions. Uh, now, in reality, there were two types of students: there are those who ask questions and those who don't ask questions. And then the ones who don't have to ask questions. There's a litany of reasons why they don't. But of the ones who ask questions, they could really be broken down into two groups: those who wanted to know and those who wanted to show. So. Some had questions about the material or about a situation that they were facing, and they, they recognized that the professor had credentials, that he had wisdom and life experience, and they genuinely wanted to learn from him. <clears throat> Others asked questions about the material or some situation that they found themselves in because they recognized their own wisdom, and they really just wanted the professor to affirm how incredibly smart those students were. Why do we do that? I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe you're immune to that desire. But, you know, whether it's in a classroom where you know you want the professor to see how smart you are, your teacher to recognize how smart you are, maybe it's just at a party. And, uh, and you just, you look for ways to kind of work in the, uh, you know, some discussion about your your degree, or you know, when I was uh, when I was studying for that in my, my master's, did I mention I have a master's? In my master's degree program, my professor once once said to me, "What, what is this performance? We're constantly just trying to make ourselves, I don't know, liked. We want to be liked. We want to be we want to be accepted." We want, to be, we want to know that we're on the inside. We're on the in crowd. <clears throat> we're desperate. We're desperate to know that, like, we're okay, that people think we're okay, that, that, that they accept us. It's one thing when we act that way with each other. Uh, it's, a, it's another thing when we act that way with God, kind of bringing our resume to him. You know, desperate to know that we're okay. Wanting to know that we're accepted. The the fancy theological term for this is justification. Uh, knowing that I'm okay—that's what being justified means. It means that you're you're okay. You're you're justified. You're 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 righteous. You're accepted. Uh, it's one thing when we try to prove ourselves to each other, wearing our resumes on our sleeves. You know, making sure that that you know all that we've accomplished or all that I've done. It's another thing when we are trying to justify ourselves before God. And so before we get into the points, and and there are points, I promise. um, I just, I'll give them to you as we get to them. Also, I did want to say, and I apologize, but uh, the title, and maybe it'll stick more. If I I correct a word, it's actually right question, wrongly asked. So I'm not going to preach a sermon on how Jesus gave the wrong answer. So some of you might have been worried about that. So if you just scratch that out, right question, wrongly asked. So that's my fault there. But uh, we do need to address the, I don't know, the good Samaritan in the room here. Because this isn't a sermon on the value of a vibrant uh, diaconal mercy ministry. Uh, this isn't a sermon on how we, the church needs a holistic approach to caring for the needs of others. And we have an example in the Good Samaritan how to do that. Now, w- the church does need a vibrant diaconal mercy ministry. And Hope of Christ has that. Has an excellent uh, Diaconate, who care well for uh, the needs not only of those inside the church, but those in our community. Um, but to turn this sermon into a, hey, here's how to be better at being merciful, is almost doing the exact thing that Jesus seems to be speaking against. Like, just do better and you'll justify yourself. Yes, we need to be merciful, but we also need to recognize where mercy flows from. Why should we be merciful? How, and how do we find the strength uh, to be as merciful as God calls us to be? Jesus tells us the reason he told the parable is because this Lawyer was trying to justify himself. That's why Jesus tells the parable. And so, this has to be the angle from which we approach uh, this teaching. From this idea of why do we try to justify ourselves? Or what happens when we try to justify ourselves? When you and I seek to justify ourselves before God, uh, at least three things occur, and you see them in this passage. First of all, we assume our own holiness. Second, we limit God's requirements. And then third, we deny God's mercy. So when you and I seek to justify ourselves, when you seek to justify yourself before God, you assume your own holiness. Everything about this man's interaction with Jesus, he's trying to say to Jesus and announce to him, I'm fine, I'm acceptable, you should just acknowledge it. The lawyer uh, is literally one of the wise and understanding from Jesus's prayer. A, a lawyer in in Luke it's, is what Matthew and Mark call a scribe. So he's not a lawyer like you and I would think of today, but he was, uh, he's like a lay leader in, in the church, in the community. He, he would study the law, uh, not the law of Rome, but the law of God. And he would teach and instruct. And so he would help people understand God's word, specifically God's law. So you could think of him as like, like maybe the head of the Sunday school department. So a smart guy, maybe not the pastor, not, you know, not a priest or a Levite, uh, but someone high up with, with credentials. And he stands up before Jesus. Why? To ask a, a deep, sincere, heartfelt question that's been keeping him up at night? No. That's not why. Uh, his, His son over dinner asked him a question and it stumped him and so he went to Jesus to find the answer so he could help his son. No, that's not why. He stood up to test Jesus. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he quotes Deuteronomy, speaking to Satan who's tempting him, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's the same word that in 1 Corinthians Paul says to the church, do not put Christ to the test like so many did back in the wilderness, which by the way is a great kind of biblical historical, like looking at biblical theology, realizing Christ was part of it all along, but that's not what this sermon's about. That's 1 Corinthians. Uh, Anyway, he asks Jesus, this question, "What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so, yes, it sounds like the focus it feels like you know our you know our our reformed spidey senses are tingling you know it 's like oh that 's where he went wrong. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know what do I have to do? What do I, what works do I have to accomplish? but it could be as simple as he 's asking. What do I need to do to be right with God? How can I know I'm accepted? And that's why I'm saying it's, it's not a bad question. It's the right question. It's just wrongly asked. I mean, have you ever asked that question? I hope so. I hope you've asked that question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to know I am right with God? We need to ask this question. How does Jesus answer that question? Well, actually, he doesn't, does he? (laughs) He doesn't answer the question. In fact, I love this. If you read this whole passage, you've got the man asks a question, Jesus asks a question, the man answers, Jesus answers. And then the man asks a question, and then Jesus asks a question, and then the man answers, and then Jesus answers. So it's a beautiful literary layout, but Jesus asks the man. He wants to hear what the man thinks. Well, What does the law say? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. You are a teacher of the law. So, could we find the answer to your question in the law? And the man responds You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You know, these aren't first century ideas. These aren't New Testament ideas. The man is literally quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus nineteen eighteen. And so first, the law says, how do you know if you're right with God? Well, do you love him? Do you love God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your heart, the core of your being. This is your desires, your thoughts, your emotions. Jesus says, out of, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, so it's, it's the source of your words. Do your words display a love for God? It's, our desires come from our hearts, so do the things that I want show that I love God most? Do I love God with my desires and my thoughts and my words and my focus? Do you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, your, your psyche? This is the core of your being, all of your personhood. When someone asks, who are you? Is your first thought, I'm someone who loves God if you had to fill in the uh, the rest of this statement, if you want to know me, the first thing you need to know about me is I love God. Or is there another thing? Is there something else that I would say the first thing you need to know about me is how I vote, what I drive, Where my kids do or do not go to school. This is the first thing you need to know about me. Jesus says, the law says, I love God with my soul, the core of my being. My personhood is defined by my relationship with God. Your strength. Your ability is, I love, my, love God with all of my abilities, my, my actions, my power, my, the physical person that I am. Everything that I do with my body flows out of my love for God. Everything I put into my body flows out of my love for God. Everything I deny my body flows out of my love for God. But not just my stuff, Everything that my, not just my body, but everything my body brings in, like my stuff. The car I drive is because I love God. The house I own is because I love God. I love God with all of the strength of my person and my mind. Every thought captive all the time. My intellect, my reasoning, the things that I think about, the things that I know, I know them because first I love God and it drives my knowledge of the world and of everything around me how I see and interpret the things going on, flow from the love that I have for God. And not just four compartmentalized ideas, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, but all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and all the time. Jesus' response when he gives the answer, Jesus says, so do this. You've answered correctly. And his do this literally is a a present tense active verb. He says to him, so keep on doing this. Continue doing this. In your entire life, for all of your life, do this and you'll live. Oh, and also love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Well, how do I love myself? Well, do you feed yourself? Well, then feed your neighbor. Do you clothe yourself? Then clothe your neighbor. Do you provide for yourself? Provide for your neighbor. Do you sacrifice for yourself? Well, sacrifice for your neighbor. Are you patient with yourself? Be patient with your neighbor. Do you overlook Faults and idiosyncrasies in yourself? Overlook those faults and idiosyncrasies. Do you spend money and time and effort on yourself? Do you forgive yourself? Well, forgive your neighbor. And that's it. Do this and keep on doing this, and you will live. Are you overwhelmed yet? I hope so. You're supposed to be. That was the desire of Jesus when he turned the question back on the man. What does the law say? How do you know you can be, how do you know if you're right with God? You can know if you do these things. When you think you can justify yourself, you will assume your own holiness. How did the lawyer respond to the first command? Anyone? How did he respond to the first command? Yeah, he didn't. He didn't respond to the first command. He skips over the first command he doesn't ask a question how how do I love God like that how how is that even possible all my heart soul strength and mind all how he doesn't ask he just assumes oh yeah 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 yes yes of course of course love yeah I do that but but who's my neighbor Of course I love God the way I'm supposed to love God. That's the easy part. That's ridiculous. When we are focused on justifying ourselves, we will assume our own holiness and we will try to limit God's requirements. And there it is again, verse 29. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Why is he asking Again, Luke tells us not to get clarity, but to justify himself, to say, I'm okay. One way that we justify ourselves is assuming our own holiness. The other way is if we can't assume our holiness, well, we'll limit God's requirements. I'll make it easier. Okay, love my neighbor. Obviously, uh, this has limitations, right, Jesus? Like, who's my neighbor? And, and it comes from his sort of strict, literal understanding of Leviticus 19, In Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, uh, God says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So to take this literally, first, there's already a limitation. It's my brother's. It's just Israel, right? Like, I just have to love the people of my kind, my people, my folks. Those are the ones I have to love. But isn't it even more limited than that? I mean, come on, there's not, I don't have to love all of them. Have you met some of them? There are some that must be beyond the reach of love for neighbor, either because of things they've done or just because of who they are, how they're born, what they're like. He wants to know how he can limit his love. What can I do? He's certainly not expecting that the example of love is going to come from a hated Samaritan. The love that Jesus describes for neighbor is as unlimited as the love that we're called on to love God with. It's a different love, so it's not a worshiping love, but it's still unlimited. Here, this time, the question isn't rightly or wrongly asked, but the right question. It's the wrong question. Jesus doesn't answer this question. He answers the question the man should have asked. The man said, who is my neighbor? What he should have asked is, how can I be a neighbor? How can I be a neighbor to others? That's the question Jesus answers. And it is this full-orbed love. The Samaritan saw the man and had compassion. There's empathy involved. The The Samaritan went to the man. He approaches him. There's like he... He identifies with the man. He doesn't care about that, maybe the robbers are still nearby. He goes right to the man and meets him where he is. There's an embracing of even potential danger. He binds up the man's wounds, he attends to the needs, the immediate needs the man has. Think about this. The, the Samaritan, we're not told the Samaritan's a doctor on his way to a house call. So for him to bind up the man's wounds means he tore some of his own garments to make cloths to bind the man's wounds. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. The wine with the alcohol in it would have, would have cleaned the wound. The oil would have soothed the pain. But doing that gives up the oil and wine for himself. He, he takes on discomfort he endures hardship he puts the man on his own animal and so he presumably now is walking this difficult road and the road from jerusalem to jericho is by the way a difficult difficult road it's about 17 miles and i if i remember correctly the the change in elevation is about 2 or 3000 feet over 17 miles and so it's it's rocky it's it's, it's a difficult path. There are caves. Uh, there are places for robbers and thieves to hide. But he takes long care, long-term care of the man too. He brings him to an inn. Even bringing him to an inn. This is a Samaritan on a road in Judea, on a road that is traveled almost entirely by Jews. This Samaritan is going to walk to an inn with an injured Jew on his donkey. So he's willing to even endure misunderstanding and false accusations just to care for this man. He takes him in. He cares for him all day. Then he gives two denarii, two days' wages he gives to the innkeeper to take care of this man. That would be enough to cover probably about a week or two weeks of stay and care at the inn. And he says, and I'll be back in case it costs more and I'll pay it all. There is no limit on God's holy requirements for love. There's no limit on God's requirement for us to love God. There's no limit on God's requirement for us to love each other. Nobody is subhuman. That's the question. Who's my neighbor? Who get, Who do I get out of having to love? Who Is less than human. All people are in need of mercy. The very idea that there might be some who don't deserve mercy is an ironic thing to say. The very idea of mercy is that it's not deserved. You don't deserve it. You need mercy. You don't deserve mercy, and that's the final rub. When I try to justify myself, I don't just assume my own holiness. I don't just uh, limit God's holiness or God's requirements. I, I deny God's mercy. When I'm trying to justify myself, first of all, I deny that I need God's mercy. Isn't that the problem of the Levite and the priest? The priest and the Levite in the story, they're fine. They don't need God's mercy. This lawyer, he's fine. He's not looking for mercy. He's looking for justification. He's looking for attaboys. And when I don't see my own need of mercy, it's impossible for me to be willing to show mercy to others because I think I've figured it out. I think I've made it. I've got it done. I don't know what your problem is. I mean, maybe we'll pray for each other. I mean, I'll pray that you'd be more like me. I'll get you a bracelet. What would Leonard do? That might help you, at least out of some sticky situations. When you are sure you don't need mercy, you will not show mercy. Even when you recognize your need for mercy, sometimes you won't show mercy. Well, the parable of the the unforgiving servant. Remember in that parable in Matthew, the man has this insurmountable, unattainable, definitely not payoffable that's a real word, uh, debt that his master forgives. In fact, he goes to the master and he says, have mercy and I'll repay it, which is silly because he owes like 48,000 years of wages to the guy by today's standards, and, and the master forgives the debt, but he goes out and the man owes him two and a half months, three months of wages, and he grabs him by the neck, and he throws him in prison, and he doesn't even hear when the man he's choking uses the exact same words, have mercy on me, be patient, and I'll pay you back. Like even when we receive mercy, sometimes we despise that we needed it, and so it hardens our heart to show mercy to others. interesting, the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. When Jesus says, so who who was the neighbor? He can't say "Uh, that Samaritan. He just says "Uh, the one who showed mercy. And for a second time, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. This is still the standard, you know. Like Jesus doesn't say to him, oh no, no, you got it wrong. Just do, as, just do as good as you can. I'll take care of the rest. No, this, he says, you're right. Do this, keep doing this, and you'll live. Would you make yourself right with God? Would you prove yourself to God? Would you justify yourself then love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Do it all the time without fail, without fainting, without faltering. And I hope you are not the wise and understanding lawyer. I hope you are a child who says, I can't. I can't. Exactly. If you're going to be right with God, if God is going to accept you, and that's the standard, then God is going to have to do something. If that standard still needs to be met, and you can't do it, someone's going to have to do that for you. Someone is going to have to love God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind on your behalf. Someone is going to have to love God with all of his heart, just the, the core of his being, the, his, his desires, his words, his actions will flow out of a love for God. He's going to have to love God with all of his soul, his very personhood is going to have to be defined by his love for God. He will have to, like, if you want to know, if you want to ask him, who are you? He will say, I am one who loves my father. If you want to know me, you'll have to get to know how much I love my father. You'll need someone to love God with his very soul, his strength. Every ounce of his activity will flow out of a love for God. His his actions, the way he works, the way he acts, the way he treats people, everything will come out of what he does with his stuff. It will come out of his love for God and and his mind, his thoughts, every thought captive to God. I don't say anything that my Father in heaven hasn't already said. I do nothing of my own will. I only do what my Father in heaven has told me to do. All of his being wrapped up in his love for God, and he will need to love others unconditionally. He will need to be able to love every person that God puts in his path perfectly, always compassionately, always pouring out, always meeting the need exactly as the need is brought, and going beyond the need, and he will need to do it always, and he did Christ met that standard for you. His this is justification. Being counted being declared acceptable, but not because of your resume, but because of Christ's resume. You're declared okay with God because Christ's record was counted for you and your record was counted against Him. Not only did He do all these things, but then He took our record of our lack of love for God and our lack of love for each other, and He bore that on the cross, paying the penalty that we owe. And the thing is, It's still the standard today, even after the cross. You are still to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Not in order to justify yourself. Not to say, look how well I've done, God. Aren't you proud of me? Don't you accept me now? But because God has already accepted me a love that flows out of the love that God has already shown. The strength to live this way doesn't doesn't come from me. It comes from realizing what God has done, understanding the love that God has for you. The, The God that you refused to love as he deserves to be loved loved you anyway. He sent his son to take your record and to pay the penalty for your record and to give you his record, to have his record counted on behalf of you, not because you deserved it, but because you need it. If his standards haven't changed and he knows your frailty then he must have a plan to help you. He must know that that you will need to be united to Christ in order to do this. You will need the Spirit poured out into you in order to love this way. You you will need to realize that uh, the one who dwells in you is greater than anyone who dwells in this world. That he who, who began this good work in you will be faithful and he'll complete it. And yeah, are you going to do this perfectly as Christ did in this life? Of course not. But can your love for God grow? Do you love God more today than you did 10 years ago? Do you love God more today than you did a week ago? is there a growing is there a a movement in you that that more of your heart is for God and more of your soul is defined by Christ and more of your strength is spent in serving him and more of your mind is devoted to things in heaven instead of things on earth do you see this changing In you, you rejoice in what God has done. Because you know that you are loved. Not because you're earning that love, but you are loved just because, well, why? Why are you loved? In Deuteronomy 7, the very, just a few verses after, the call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength We're told, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Why? Why did God choose you? Not, he says, because you were more in number than other people. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest. You were the least. You were children. So why did God set his love on you? It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore. You have to hear this. Why did the Lord set his love on you? Because he loves you. There is no bigger reason. God says, I love you because I love you. And I promised to. And I don't break my promises. I love you. I mean, that's the best answer a husband can give to his wife. I mean, imagine, what are the other possibilities? Why do you love me? You cook good careful. Why do you love me? You're pretty punctual. Why do you love me? You're not very demanding. Why do you love me? I love many things about my wife, but they're not why I love my wife. I love my wife because I love my wife. And there's no greater reason. And there's no better reason. God loves you because he loves you. And he promised to. And he doesn't break his promises. And a love like that, far from causing me to say, oh, good, well, then that's, I don't have to worry about that anymore. It would cause me to say, how do I, how do I respond? How do I how do I love someone who loves me that unconditionally? I think I would, I think I would want to start loving Him with, with a little bit more of my heart and a, and a little bit more of my soul and a little bit more of my strength and a little bit more of my, my mind. And, and I think I would want others to know that love too. And it would actually draw me and drive me. In first, Second Corinthians 5, our, our assurance of pardon and grace, the love of Christ controls us. It's not, it's, it, it's, it's, the, it's possessive. It's not your love of Christ. It's the love of Christ. Christ's love controls us. We're compelled by Jesus' love for us because we've concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised we love, John says, because he first loved us. We are justified. We are okay. We are accepted and acceptable to God in Christ alone. Let's pray. It is good for us, God, to to look and see how we might be better neighbors to each other, but but it must flow, Jesus, out of your love for us and our love for you. We must recognize that you, you love us because you love us and you don't break your promises. God, fill us with a love for you and a love for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.